today I'd like to share a conversation I had with my friend Monica Snyder, who lives in Tucson, Arizona. She was diagnosed in 2010 with a connective tissue disorder called EDS. Um, this was after her young daughter had already been diagnosed. And since then, her older daughter has received the same diagnosis as has her father, her sister, and her sister's children, and a cousin. This is a disorder that causes all kinds of debilitation and pain. As Monica will share, she is about to go in for her 33rd surgery. And she's had to set aside all kinds of expectations that she had of her, what her life would look like and what her kids' lives would look like. But she is one of the most resilient and beautiful humans that I've had the pleasure of knowing. So I'm excited for you to uh, be introduced to Monica and to hear how she has managed to pursue life and aliveness day to day in the midst of circumstances that have not taken any kind of magical turn for the better. Okay, so Monica, I am so glad you're here, and I have been looking forward to this conversation more than you probably know. I feel like it's um, actually a long time coming for us to just get to sit down and talk. And of course, people are listening in, so it's not just us, but most of the time when I've seen you, it's been in group settings, and so um, this feels special to me. Thank you for having me. It is very, very special. Um, you have been an important part of um, my journey, my family's journey, your music um, for a very, very long time. So thank you for having me today. Yeah, the music brought us together, but then we found we're kind of kindred souls, many miles for, apart. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> and um and your book of Rumi's poems that you sent to me a few months ago is still sitting beside my armchair. And uh, Poems from the Pond by, mm -hmm. um, I always forget, it's Peggy Friedberg, right? Is her name? It is, yeah. Um, those I've carried around. I think it's actually stained with various liquids, drinks I've spilled on it over the years, which just goes to show how much it means to me. I've kept it close and carried it in backpacks. And you're just that kind of person that no matter what you're going through, you're still send, you're still taking care of other people and like sending love in physical snail mail across the miles. And I'm always astounded by that. I would love for you to, for us to start out by hearing where you're at today. I, I want to introduce you to people and I know your story is going to be a gift. So where are you today? What is your reality like at this point in your life? Um, I am married 20 years to my husband, Dan, and um, I have two daughters. Delaney is 18, and she's a freshman at ASU, Arizona State University, and Danica is 13 in seventh grade. Um, I think I've always said that if I do nothing else but love them well, that that would be um, a life of success. So um, becoming chronically ill and in my home most of the time has given me an opportunity to love them uh, much more well than I maybe would have in a healthy body. So um, wow. just one of the first gifts. <laughs> and... 
I live in Tucson, Arizona, um, and that's kind of a special thing. Um, God moved us from Ohio in August of 2018, and that was actually several months after I saw you at the first EDS retreat in mm-hmm. Kerala. And I had been coming here by myself since 2014 in like February timeframe when Ohio is unbearable. I prayed and journaled um, continuously that God would kind of just move stones and bring us here because it was a place that I knew I wouldn't be fully healed, but I would be more well. Um And so he did that for us in 2018, the summer after I saw you, I had three um, brain shunt surgeries really quick in succession. And um, someone called us and said, you just need to move to Arizona and we want to help you. And um, it's just part of our story, how kindness from others and God's love can literally change the trajectory of your life and the life of your children and your health. Mm. And so he was making provision, but he was also asking us to trust him. Dan didn't have a job here. Um, We just picked up and because of the love of someone else, we said, okay, we're going to go. So I'm in Tucson 914 days now Mm -hmm. and um I am more well and have lived more real life in that time than I did over a decade in Ohio. Wow. Okay, so let's um, have you share what EDS is to listeners who don't who aren't familiar with it because I was not familiar with it until I met you. Sure. So um, <clears throat> I have something called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome (EDS) and it is a connective tissue disorder. Um, Our whole body is connective tissue, so um, I'm particularly affected, my spine, my brain, some other things, Um, even your vascular system is connective tissue, so pumping enough blood to your head and your heart and um, all those things. And my daughters both also inherited it. So Danica, very early on, my youngest daughter, um, and that's how I was diagnosed after years and years of pain, um, being told I had, you know, either nothing wrong with me or misdiagnoses. And then Danica um, was diagnosed at 18 months old, and that kind of opened mm. up. So, and then Delaney actually, um, we said she had her dad's genes, but uh, about two years ago, she started to have symptoms and she had brain surgery this past um, summer in New York. So it's definitely something that is every moment of every day, every night, part of my experience. Um, I've had 32 surgeries and I'm heading for my 33rd um, in Maryland on March 17th. And it, this is a, a, a disease that affects females only. Is that right? No, there no. are um, there are males with EDS. I think um, just the way the hormones are that less men are affected. And typically people are not diagnosed until their teenage years. And that's when things kind of start to fall apart. Most most of the girls I know were athletes or dancers, um, 
you know, gymnasts. And then all of a sudden, you know, their joints start falling, they have headaches there. So it's not something that's always diagnosed young. Um, Yeah. So you can, when you look back in your life, do you see you, you had years, you said of feeling pain, feeling, knowing something was off and they just couldn't figure it out. Did that go back to your childhood? It really did. Um, My mom now, it's so interesting to look back. I always had a headache. I was always having her rub my neck. Um, Took me to a chiropractor. Um, I had a closed spina bifida, which now we know is, you know, I had a tethered spinal cord, which was, so there, nobody really knew about connective tissue disorders, Ehlers-Danlos, or was diagnosing it back then. So, you know, once I got in my 20s, it was fibromyalgia. You know, they would put names to the to the pain, but um, again, it's it was definitely a life of pain, but there were points, a car accident, getting mono, a mm. few really traumatic things to my body that I just couldn't come back from. Yeah. Man, um, I have so many questions already. So many things, I'm, little rabbit trails I want to go down. But let's, you know, f- I haven't personally experienced physical suffering yet. And so I have so many questions about the how that intertwines with the emotions and the spiritual well-being of a person and your ability to even, you know, practice things that typically give us a sense of aliveness. You mentioned girls who were athletic and dancers and and then this physical uh, pain caught, shuts that shuts access down, you know, to some of those outlets. So I'm I'm curious to hear your journey with that, how the diagnosis affected your day-to-day life and how your spiritual well-being suffered or was able to thrive. I can't imagine that it's been any kind of straight line, but I would love to hear about that. I think, um, you know, not just with EDS, but with chronic illness in general, you, there is a point um, where I was suffering, but pushing through, pushing through. um, And then there's a point where disability, it, you know, you realize that you're becoming disabled. and that can be, that's a, you know, large continuum, what you consider disabled. But for me, um, my work, I was, had a very, very successful real estate marketing and advertising um, in the Washington, D.C. area. And losing the ability to work every day, to be part of, um, using my mind and my imagination and people. And I loved to go to work every day. Mm. And um, I think that's maybe a misconception that a lot of people have about when they see someone who's chronically ill, um, you know, remembering that in most cases before the disability, before they became that sick, that they had you know, really meaningful lives, things that as a society, we say you need to have to kind of earn your place to be here. And I think it's why people struggle with the elderly, um, 
with special needs kids with we kind of just stay in this are you a productive what are you producing what are you contributing in this way and Mm -hmm. that was the biggest loss for me like finding my way from you're not contributing a paycheck you're not part of this organization um, that's making a difference this company you're your life becomes kind of boiled down to survival at some point. And so it's definitely been years of realizing that um, productivity is not where I find my worth. Yeah. So how did, uh, let's chase that down a little bit. What did it become for you? Sure. Um, I think shifting from doing to being and when we talk to anyone, you know, it's like, what have you been up to? Where are you going on vacation? How's work? Um, What activities are your kids in? It's all, you know, what, how's the garden growing? What are you, it's all about what we're doing. Um, And we tie our, literally our identities to that. Like, Hi, I'm Monica. You know, you're Krista. What do you do? Mm-hmm. Instead of who are you, we say, you know, what do you do? <laughs> and um, I think this COVID pandemic has actually created a sense for everyone of, you know, moving. I think it's an opportunity, although a painful one to move from the doing, excuse me, to the being. Because so much of the activity and vacations and, you know, office and parties and all of that was stripped away. And so I've seen people begin to grasp a little more. People will message me or have called or written and said, wow, like this is what your life is like, Mm -hmm. um, kind of like the pandemic, (laughs) which means, you know, it's unsafe for me to go out. I don't have the energy. Um, I have mast cells. So if, you know, perfume, I miss my kids, things, activities for my kids. Um, so everyone is kind of like, Oh, wow. Like, and what do they have to talk about then? It's, who are like who are you right um, when everything else falls away so i've seen that here in town with in nashville with musicians it's like for those who are really especially heavily reliant on touring it's like uh, who am i if i'm not yeah. if i'm not a touring artist you know what do i even have to share or 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 how do i be <laughs> how how, exactly. how to be in my own skin has, has it been has it been meaningful ministering to you in some way to have people um, express a, maybe a more deeply felt compassion recently in, in that, in um, the sense of being able to relate in some small way? For sure. Um, and I think our whole chronic illness community, you know, particularly those of us with EDS, we have felt You know, now all of a sudden a doctor's appointment can be uh, online and the amount of energy and effort it takes to get ready and go 
and wait. And so this accessibility that we've prayed for for years um, right. to not be able to go to church because we're ill and not feel guilty because everyone's worshiping right. <laughs> online. Um, so many of those things have created a kind of not only empathy, but also I think moving forward, even as we go back, you know, post pandemic, that there will be a kind of um, continuation of this understanding that, hey, I could do a job if you would let me work from home. Right. I could, you know, I can be part of your church without you seeing me every Sunday. Um, so I, I do, I, I see, you know, that that's made a huge difference in our chronic illness community. Wow, it's, it's so sad to me that the reality that it takes such a major, you know, catastrophic event for for awareness to kick mm -hmm. in and for us to get really um, innovative and resourceful and go, oh, hey, there are other ways to go about things. And there's been the, the we have had family members all along who have needed this and asked for it. Um, that's really kind of uh, hurts my heart a little bit. But also, I, I mean, I'm grateful that it is happening and that that will impact your life. Uh, in that way, but I'm sorry that it takes so much to get us to move, you know, in compassionate directions for each other. So you were talking about the um, the loss of work, having to set that aside after being involved with real estate and, and entering into a season where you started identifying yourself as someone with disabilities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, I think that's a everyday thing for me. Yeah. I am very type A, um, always have been. And so it's a struggle for me um, and a frustration for my family as they watch me struggle with, you know, days when I really just can't do something and yet I push and push and push. So it's an, mm -hmm. it's an ongoing, you know, something that I'm learning. I think it's important to set for me to always know that I have worth in Christ um, just being. For those who aren't maybe familiar with that language or the language of the church, what does that mean to you, finding your worth in Christ? Again, I think just from childhood, and I'm sorry, my Yorkie poo's barking. <laughs> totally fine. <laughs> um I was raised in a very kind of strict traditional church upbringing. And although we talked about grace and those kinds of things, there was still such a focus on striving. And just, I think the fact that I can just sit with God um, and that didn't happen until I completely surrendered, you know, surrendered myself to him, my body to him. And know that I'm held and loved, even if I never do another load of laundry or make a meal, scrub my tub, um, grocery shop. Like, it took years for me um, to realize that I am completely loved and held mm -hmm. just how I am. Not, again, not by what I do or what I accomplish. N nothing that I bring, nothing I bring to him um, can earn his love. So the belief that 
humans are created by God in yeah. love is enough. That to bestow worth on every human life, whatever they are doing or not doing is not connected to our intrinsic value. Exactly. But just existing, existing. Yeah. You know, also just a shift in what can glorify God. And for me, you know, that could just be a faithful um, getting up out of bed and praying for others. Um, those are unseen things. And maybe that's all I can do that day. Mm. Um, being an encourager. Um, if people asked me, like, what do you do now? I would say, you know, I'm a wife and a mother and I'm an encourager. Hmm. So. so those are, you've learned to look for the things that the illness cannot take away That's from right. you, right? Mm -hmm. I love that. I'm curious how others in your various communities, because you've lived in some different places, how have people effectively come alongside of you and helped you to feel like as alive as you can feel, depending on whatever circumstances you're enduring in the moment? Um, how have others been able to support you, encourage you? I think it's the most beautiful part of our long story. And it's if I was going to publish a book about anything... Um, and I wrote a book and I don't even think it's like the story now. I, I, you mm. understand how yeah. it's always <laughs> things turning. Can, how things can really shift, um, particularly with your faith. But the most beautiful part of our story is the kindness of others. Um, and I know that this, when I tell you this, I know this doesn't ring true to everyone who is suffering. Um and this hasn't been their experience. So I say it couched in this, you know, this gift. I think part of it has come from my willingness to be vulnerable. And to, I did blog for so many years, kind of the good, the bad, the ugly. And people came and joined our story for a very long time. Mm -hmm. um, and in big and small ways cared for us for... Um, me taking me to surgeries out of state, staying with me, my children, getting them to and from school and meals, um, financially, uh, you know, almost all of our surgeries have been out of network, out of state, care that we just would not have had access to without the love of others. Um, but honestly, some days that kindness was the miracle. Um, is the miracle. So um, that, I mean, that more than anything, I think has been what's carried us, carried me through, you know, through all of this suffering. Yeah. Yeah. I've often said that the difficult things I've faced that, you know, have deeply broken my heart, um, have have surprisingly not been the things that bring me to tears as much mm -hmm. as the kindness of other people brings me to tears. I'm much more likely to break down or to break open um, in the face of beauty or generosity from others 
that feels, it does, it feels so miraculous sometimes, just the sm- smallest thing, you know, like getting something in the mm-hmm. mail from you on the right day, you know, <laughs> or a text, a thoughtful text from someone I haven't spoken to in a while. How do we help people, you know, our, our loved mm-hmm. ones are suffering and I just feel so awkward. Like what, I feel like I'm going to say the wrong thing. I think I'm going to do the wrong thing. How do I show up? What do you, yeah. I mean, you've sort of answered that. Would you add anything to that? What do you think people need to know and understand about? Especially, yeah. I would I would say particularly people like you and your daughters who are um, dealing with chronic illness. So it's not a singular event. Right. And then, okay, I'm over it. There's another pain in that, what you're dealing with. There is. I think um, knowing that I always say it's healing, but never healed in this lifetime. Um, people say things like, well, when, I hope this is your last surgery. Or I hope, right. And, you know, this surgery is really to get me, okay, how far can I get until I can't drive, you know, till Danica can drive. So that's mm-hmm. kind of my goal then. But um, again, I think what I've been writing about that maybe will be, something that people can use down the road is very specific stories of kindnesses um, and the ability to listen to the spirit and to say, okay, you know, they've been on my heart all day. I should write them a note. Um, Or we just have these beautiful stories, this couple who truly didn't have a lot of money and every month he would send a check for $25, which was a copay on one of our prescriptions. Mm -hmm. Um, And just an old, older couple, you know, doing what you can do, you know, there we've had, we had someone move us to Arizona, you know, so you're like, well, I can't do that for someone. (laughs) Um, But when all of this kindness comes together, um, it, it truly has carried and sustained us. And it's been like, you know, God lifting us up, carrying us. And um, there's so many different ways. I have a friend who puts $50 in Amazon every month because mm. for book, like for years and years and years, just for Monica to have books, that's a very specific that is way a- to love someone, you know, and love them well. So um, yeah, that I is think beautiful. I love that. I love that that too because clearly that person knows you and your love for words, <laughs> right? <laughs> Language. So Amazon was my best. my grand my yeah, my grandma sends me stamps. You know they're more oh. expensive than they used to be, and she's like, "This is what I can do," and she'll send me stamps for my letters. Um, you know, my pen to paper ministry. So, which is a um, real thing, man. I love getting snail mail so much just to see a person's handwriting is so moving to me. And so, and I, I mean, I grew up moving around a lot with my dad in the army and, and this was pre email, of course. Right. So, I mean, we were all about the letter writing and 
we lived overseas for several years, so it would take a couple weeks, you know, at least to get a letter, two or three weeks to get a letter yeah. from the States. Um, and I saved every letter and every note passed in school. I saved them until literally I had been married several years. And I finally went, made myself like open up this duffel bag. And well, I couldn't even let myself go through them because I knew I would get I would be there for days, you know, I would be bawling and I would be too attached and I would never throw a single thing away. So instead I rifled through and grabbed like the letters from my best friend um, and tied those up. And I just kind of dumped the whole thing in the uh, dumpster outside without letting myself look at it, just because I, you know, you find yourself at some points in life where you're like, I need to release the past yeah. in order to feel alive in the present. And I was needing that at the moment. But, you know, of course, a month later, I'm like, ah, did I do the right thing? <laughs> I'm so sad. But um, now what I tend to do, like when I get little notes from people like you is I'll tuck them in a book so yeah. that I'll stumble on them again later, you know, and it'll be. A- I love that. And I think, um, again, the pandemic has kind of made going to the mailbox a thing right (laughs) like in the old days and um I I'm on Facebook and you know when you're having surgery or you ask for prayer or um and you got a hundred praying for you or a praying emoji or and some of the most dear um things have been when someone you know will record them self-crying or a voice memo Mm. or write a prayer out and mail it. And um, I think we need to be called back to a slower, um, a a slower kind of love. Like I see your post on Instagram today and it moves me. Um, You know, let me write you a letter about how it moved me and Mm. a week later remind you kind of, and people are like, Oh, you reminded me of my words like that I shot off, you yeah. know, in an Insta post. So I hope that, um, and there are many currencies of kindness. I think that's the other thing I wanted to say is um, we box ourselves in, our, you know, our family has needed a lot of financial help, but honestly, the most um, miraculous care we've been given has has been in other currencies, um, and so that we need to be looking for those, you know, those currencies that we can give other people. Um, poor as we may be, yes, <laughs> we all we all have something for you. You know, a song um, that's a rich gift. Um, I have a friend who writes poetry to write a poem. Um, you know, there are women who make casseroles. Mm-hmm. I'm not one of those I'm people. I'm not one of them either. <laughs> so I could make you peanut butter and jelly. So, <laughs> but you know, that's their currency of love yes. is food or, um, so yeah. Man, I love that word currency so much. And I've actually been thinking about it the last few months, um, about how we tend to limit its application to talking about financial transaction. But I I also think it is a beautiful word to really explore even just with regard to money, because currency is something we also use, obviously, to talk about electricity and energy flowing through us. And 
our tenants, we, you know, most people, I think, have so many, <laughs> so much baggage attached to money and, um, you know, so much fear of letting it out of our hands or, or we don't know how to hold on to it when we have, like, just, we have so many <laughs> dysfunctional um, beliefs and habits there. But the more I think of it as currency, like I would think of it as electricity running through our household, you know, yeah. fueling our laptops and everything else, then and, and electricity bringing light, then it makes it feel so exciting, because we're getting to just like, let it flow through us. And then we're able, better able to receive, and then to pass it on, which is what it's meant to do. And then, you know, when you extrapolate from that and talk about all the other, use it uh, in connection with all our other talents and resources and personality, it's just all the ways that we have currency that is meant to be exchanged you know and i think the last thing about that in our regards or my regards my family is this um sense of currency and abundance and that there is always enough um more than enough and so not everyone has had the the opportunity um or the trial however you want to look at it to being your life being boiled down kind of to like maslow's hierarchy of needs you know where um you're thinking about food clothing shelter kind of what we've been seeing in texas um what and you know really what over 90 percent of the world lives like right and um when you're asked to kind of boil it down to those things we have enough um we have enough to share mm-hmm. um there there's an abundance and so i think that our need has created not a greater sense of lack but a greater sense of abundance that is huge monica what you just said is huge because i don't think especially for people when maybe still standing outside of suffering who haven't yet experienced it and i used to be one of these people i was i had a lot of friends who had suffered greatly but i hadn't and i just could not fathom that that would be true you know but i was seeing it i was witnessing it the truth of it you know like i witnessed it in you this miraculous sense of abundance and and having enough to share enough energy to put something in the mail um but you know as an outsider to suffering at the time i couldn't fathom that i was like how is she doing that and now i have experienced it to it myself and i remember um and i i don't think i've yet found i've written a bunch of songs of course but i don't think i've yet found a way to fully articulate it how you can be suffering and expanding at the same time you know, or you're expanding because of the suffering. Uh, it's. I think that's it. Yeah. It it's miraculous. I I'm curious about um to ask you about the word hope because it's uh, something I've personally been thinking a lot about. I've kind of stopped using the word hope, um, but I've had some interesting conversations around it, and the reason I've stopped using it so much is because of the way it has historically been used by me and my uh, 
culture mm-hmm. in my life, it's been very attached to outcomes, you know, and, and this I, it came to me because you were talking about how people would say, I pray, or I hope this is your last surgery. Um, yeah. And, and, and so um, I remember years ago, uh, a friend saying, you know, they, he and his wife had experienced many miscarriages and um, people kept saying, Oh, this is going to, I'm this next time, next time it'll, you know, and he, he was like, (laughs) but maybe it won't, maybe it'll never. So then what, you know, like I, how do I have my joy and my aliveness hinge on an outcome? So anyways, how do you interact with the word hope? And especially, um, maybe this is a follow-up question in the, the worst of the worst moments, you know, physical, when you just are in ultra survival mode. Maybe times of surgery or or whatever um, that is. What do you go to? How do you stay alive inside? Is it hope? I think yeah. I was th- well. I was thinking about hope today. For years, our family, whenever I would sign off on you know GoFundMe or my blog, and I would say our hope remains. And then today I said something like, okay, this isn't a bumper sticker. Like, Mm -hmm. I think I'm, I think I'm losing that (laughs) that (laughs) sign off. But um, actually, you know, the first song I ever heard you sing was A Thousand Things. Um, And my idea of the sovereignty of God or how I had been raised about, um, you know, God's involved in every single detail. So, you know, the parking lot, God, and two minutes before, two minutes after, um, you know, later early saving you from the car accident, like these extrapolating these, you know, intricate details of your life. And um, I think I struggled my whole childhood with, you know, there's this huge world and of course suffering, you know, and then he's here making sure that I park close or it just didn't, it, it, it was hot. It was very difficult. Um, and then when you begin to suffer, particularly when your children are suffering um, and you wonder, God, what are you doing? You know? Um, and I don't ask what if anymore that again, that's something that over years and years of suffering, that question is, just not necessary anymore. Um, But the thousand things, realizing that um, a lot of what God is doing, you know, in us, around us, through us, um, we we may never see or understand. Um, And being willing to be used like that, even your suffering to be used like that. And I don't mean that he's not always doing soul business in me because I think he is, but um, that there truly are a thousand other things happening. Um, So hope for me is, I, I can't, like you, I've tried to get away from words that tie me to this traditional and I don't mean that they're not used in the Bible, but, um, you know, blessed is what? That God answered my prayer exactly how I wanted. Or, um, 
I just, it was, I've, I've tried to get away from those words because we can pray and pray and pray for something. And um, God is, you know, say God is good if he answers, but so often the answer is no, um, or yes, in a different way, or I'll, you know, I'll sustain you mm-hmm. right where you are. And um, so I think that's what hope for me is, is just the, you know, kind of just the sustaining um, hand of God through all of this stuff. Um, yeah. And when you're in the, again, in those moments in, in survival mode, um, or, or are you, a, have you lived with it so long that you, when most people would be in survival mode, you're actually you know, in some, something above survival mode. I don't know. Do you ever get to, is that possible to get so masterful at interacting with your own suffering that you can thrive in the middle of it? Um, something really big shifted when we moved here. Um, and I think that had to do with the sun. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you know, Ohio, in the winter can be like three weeks of no sun and um, I'm kind of solar powered. So um, <laughs> I totally connect with that. <laughs> yeah. Ever since I was a teen, <laughs> right. Your line, you know, I'd rather go blind than look away. Like <laughs> that's that. right. if I get a new tattoo, that's what it'll be <laughs> um, for sure. But I, I had periods where my physical suffering um, for sure accelerated my mental, spiritual suffering. And I think um, those are the hardest times when, um, you know, I had suicidal ideations or not wanting to kill myself, but wanting to disappear, to Mm -hmm. not, you know, to not, and not, that wasn't even for me to escape suffering, but because I loved the people around me to let them not have to watch this anymore. Um, and so that something even in the last six to nine months has really shifted in that. I've not had one thought of wanting to escape this or, you know, disappear or end this. And, um, so I don't, and I, I could have one tonight. I could, you know, feel that way when I'm in the hospital three weeks from now. But um, it's just, I think it is grace. Like whether you go through something like I do with deep physical pain and being wounded over and over and over again by surgery. Um, there are other people's lives, people that I love and know who, um you know, we always said if we put everybody's stuff in a pile, you know, would you grab yours back? And, you know, I have people whose, you know, marriages are painful and ending, betrayal, you know, people with teenage children who are dealing with addiction and um, just so many other kinds of pain and suffering. And so I think I, always want to be very careful that you know 
people can look at me and be like, okay, there's 33 surgeries and, you know, physical disability and financial need. And again, I hope through COVID that we've kind of learned to take care of each other in a bigger, in a bigger way than, you know, than just those tangible needs. But, um, you know, mental and spiritual health is, it's so much more important. What I've come to learn is my body is um, a vessel for um, the being. You know, we said being instead of doing. And so um, kind of learning to be kinder to myself and treasure this vessel, but, um, you know, more focused on the spirit. So, yeah. Um. Your husband, Dan, you guys have been married how long? For 20 years. We celebrate our anniversary week before last. Yeah. Oh, so, congratulations. Thank Two you. Decades. Um, so, he's been here with you along, you know, he's been at your side through all of this, right? He wow. has. And, you know, when we first met and fell in love, I was the Monica working, successful, you know, probably the things that drew him to me initially. <laughs> Mm. Um, you know, and so his love for me has, I would honestly say his ability to sit and look at it, um, cause that's what people have trouble doing, um, is staying. So, um, his ability to, to stay and then as we've grown closer together, this idea he always says, I'm only as well as you are. Oh. And, um, you know, to have someone sit with you like that for so long and love you so dearly, um, you know, I don't take that for granted at all. His mother um, died of breast cancer when he was young, and he watched her have two years from diagnosis till when he was 11 to 13, suffered greatly and so um was being prepared in some way i think for for loving his wife and daughters Mm. you know in this way so wow as a couple then because i know i know personally some other couples out there who have different versions of this kind of partnership where one of them is living with uh, chronic illness and or or other things, maybe um, chronic depression, something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and the partner is devoted and faithful and, and there. Um, but it obviously takes a unique toll on each one of them and presents its unique challenges to the partnership. How, how do you guys... Um, how would how do you think the two of you would define a life like living a life that is fully alive how do you how do you experience that together and how do you nurture that as a couple um that's interesting t- to think about um Dan and I are very different so um i think one of the ways that Dan cares for us so well um, and cares for me is the practical day in and day out um, love. So 
you know, doing laundry and vacuuming and, you know, things that sometimes I'm not physically able to do. Um, I think laying down his pride, um, maybe one of the hardest things for him and both of us, um, because we were such workers and earners and, um, and asking for help. Um, so that's not something one person in a marriage can do. It has to be together. And so not only asking, but also receiving. Yeah. Um, that's one of the things that's probably been hardest, honestly, mm-hmm. for us. Um, but both of us have different, um, we're very different. And I think that that has bathed us in a lot of ways. And so the things that sustain me, um, a lot of personal spiritual practice. So meditating, you know, my journaling time, those became um, that's, it became like eating, you know, and drinking yes. and breathing for me. Um, because there's so many days that you don't feel whether you're ill or not, that you just don't feel like it. And so this kind of scaffolding that was built up of these, you know, disciplines, reading poetry is one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to do these things every day. I think Dan has given me the permission and the space um, that I think other couples maybe struggle with to have this kind of rich interior life that um, he's maybe not a part of. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? (laughs) So much sense. I think it's beautiful. I don't believe any, I think a few years ago, if if I had even heard the word aliveness, I would have instantly just thought joy, happiness, you know, peace. But now I understand that it there is no aliveness without it being all encompassing of all the experiences. Um, obviously, you've had to dive deep and allow in allowing the reality of suffering on a day to day basis, and it's probably you know, you're having to, like you said, uh, commit yourself to disciplines and practices in order to cultivate the the lighter, joyful play, not because it's not in your natural personality, but just because you're dealing with pain. Um, so what do you guys do? What are some of the things that bring you the most joy on that side of aliveness? Yeah. Um, one thing that we have been committed to since we met is um one once a quarter um to going away um you know leaving our children and even for a night and being completely and totally um there for one another and that usually involves good food um a bottle of wine a music a playlist um and we just had that um, for our anniversary two weeks ago. And someone early on in our chronic illness journey, when Danica was young, they said they knew that this was important to Dan and I, particularly just a night out to dinner, like um, to food, wine, yeah. like the things that God created for us to truly enjoy. Um, and that you guys have to keep doing that. Mm-hmm. So 
no matter what, you know, and, and there have been people who are, you know, don't know us well, who would think, oh my gosh, they're going to dinner, but they have a GoFundMe or, I mean, these are real. And we, we had people who encouraged us like this, your marriage, you have to do this. You have to keep showing up and celebrating these things, you know, life, one another. Um, And so that and our family on the patio, music is a huge part of our family. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And um, so it can be something very simple like that. But um, remembering that God, our Father, to give us bread, not a stone. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's hard to do when your life is so painful to remember um, that he still wants good things for us. And so Dan, I think Dan and I, our commitment and the encouragement of others to continue to do that um, has kept our relationship alive. Oh, I love that. It, it makes me think too of... Um, some of the extreme moments in history, uh, like the sinking of the Titanic or the concentration camps, where there were those individuals who understood we still we need beauty, we need something yeah. here to remind us that we are human, you know, in our suffering. It, everything has been taken from us, but if we can make music or make create some kind of beauty together we are reminded of our full humanity and our full glory intended. And, and, and so I think that's an important note for people who, because sometimes if we are suffering, and especially if that suffering is, as you said, at all public, you know, people are reaching out and helping us, then it can feel like we can feel guilty about spending time, energy, money, resources, anything on elevating our, (laughs) um, emotional emotional state through the senses or through beauty but that it's so important i think and worth mentioning that that's not extraneous it's actually yeah uh, an essential part of our survival and thriving i've been um in conversation with a very dear counselor for a long long time um eight nine years and she would always ask me this question, like, what do you need? And again, when you're suffering and people are caring for you, um, you, of, you often don't think about, you know, what do I need or want? It's, um, and she started to encourage me in these trips to Tucson. So, you know, she and the way she framed it was people would donate you know, $10,000 for you to have spinal surgery. Mm -hmm. But the healing that happened in Tucson over four days or five days in February was exponentially, you know, it comes back to the idea of currency, what we've been speaking about. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just exponentially more healing than, you know, a lot of medical treatments. And kind of getting me to shift my mind into giving permission, saying that I need this and giving permission to, um, to have that time in that place and almost to partake of hedonistic mm-hmm. um, rituals that remind me why I want to keep fighting and suffering to live. Um, 
because it's easy to forget when you're hurting. And so the wine, the dinner, the dancing, um, you know, caring for our bodies with um, massage or a facial or, you know, those yes. are pleasure, um, some kind of pleasure reminding us to be alive. Oh, so good. Monica, what are you, um, as you, you know, journey alongside of your girls, your daughters, both of whom who have, um, have this diagnosis, what is it you're wanting most for them to carry forward for themselves, for their own um, spiritual and physical aliveness and well-being? What do they, what do you want them most to have within them? For sure, uh, personal faith, um, you know, a personal, personal walk with God, but it's a, it's an interesting thing. You know, I had the retreat, um, for EDS girls. And when I started planning that, I didn't even know that Delaney at the same kind of age would become sick and need surgery. Um, and I just, I want them to have a sense of, um, post-traumatic growth or resilience Hmm. and that option a for most of us is no longer available (laughs) and that doesn't just mean those of us who are sick um you know we can't be anything we want to be we can't do anything we want to do there's kind of this messaging Mm -hmm. you know that we've given our kids or has been there um so when you're physically ill, there are Danica's very restricted. She can't go to gym. She can't play tennis or lacrosse or, you know, and her friends are doing those things, but kind of a shift to what is my option B and how can I thrive? How can I be alive in my option B, which is what are my gifts? I'm an amazing artist. Um, I'm a great friend. Um, those things and realizing that it's like we've been tailor-made for that path. And some of us, it's a little more glaring because our, you know, our body's broken and we have an actual restriction. But um, so I think not just for my girls, but just for young people in general to realize, you know, that we're all going to have trauma um, and we're all going to have things that we can't do, that we just can't do, things we just can't be. (laughs) Um, And so being resilient enough to kind of get through the trauma and then, you know, move in the freedom of, again, who you are. Um, I love that, how you said, how can I, the question is, how can I be alive in option B? mm -hmm. I love that so much. I have one last question that I just really enjoy asking people, and that mm-hmm. is, um, what do you love about being you? Oh, gosh. <laughs> that seems so, again, something I'm really having to learn over and over is, um, and you're an artist, so you have to keep putting yourself out there, and you're like, ugh, fringy, like, is it artistic? <laughs> is it, yeah. you know... There's um, tension there for sure. Right, exactly. So what do I love about being me? 
Um, I think I like the company I keep when I'm alone. Hmm. And I think that's pretty rare. <laughs> and, um, and that was before I became ill. So um, from my childhood, from being a reader and always in the woods playing barefoot, you know, nature. Um, there are some of us who were just blessed to grow up that way. Yeah. Um, you know, either the library or the woods. <laughs> yep. And same. <laughs> yeah. My two so favorite places. It creates, you know, this kind of, you don't need to have someone you know, speaking into you all the time. And so I'm proud of that. And I think it's, you know, it, it's been a gift to me, but the fact that even through times when I'm very alone, um, I've learned to switch to saying independent instead of alone. Oh. It's weird how we can use the same word. Yeah. And it alone sounds so kind of heavy and negative, mm -hmm. but, um, so just, I would say that. And then I think the ability to see so many things as kindness or gift. Um, and that's part of a training, again, the scaffolding, right? If you, you have the practice, then um, you're kind of training your mind and your heart to see, you know, to see the good. Um, and there's always, always good. Um, so I think those two things. I love who you are and I have enjoyed listening to you so much. I feel like there's, there's so many things that you said and you said it in just such a way that it entered my spirit in a new way, in a fresh way. And, um, I'm just so grateful for that. So thank you, Monica, for thank being you. willing. Of course, there. I still am like, oh, man, I, I there's so many rabbit trails I wanted to go down. But um, maybe we'll just have to follow up another time. <laughs> can you, um, is there a way people can still access your blogs from before? Are those still up? They are. Um, right now, there's MonicaKSnyder.com. So my M-O-N-I-C-A, then K-K-A-Y-E, Snyder, S-N-Y-D-E-R.com. Okay. And the same name on Instagram. Um, you know, I'm kind of moving into three weeks from today, another big surgery. So I'm very committed yeah. to trying trying not to throw that word hope out there um, in a bumper sticker way, but kind of tell the truth, but also kind of the beauty in it. So, um, Yeah. Thank you so much. I love you. I love who you are. Thank you, Krista. I love you so much, too. But I'm dead